and welcome to the Temple of Blair episode Z or Z, depending on where you're coming from. This is an interview with Roadrunner's head of sales in the early to mid-90s, Jim Salaby. Jim's been around the block in terms of uh, the music industry. He's been in all sorts of places, Metal Blade, Mercury, uh, now working at Universal. Uh, but we do go into the minutiae of, 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 of the sales arm and how that all works. And it's a really interesting one, a la the Richard Bengloff conversation, if that's the kind of conversation you were into. But yeah, loads of interesting little tidbits in this one, and I certainly enjoyed it a lot. So thank you very much, Jim. Let's jump straight into it. One, two, fuck shit up. What enamored you to um, Roadrunner? I I'm a child of metalcore. I think is the way to describe it. So okay, um, I'm a massive fan of Trivium, Killswitch Engage, those Mike Gitter bands, and um, I kind of I went off on the, I went off in the deep end with them really, and I started just understanding that little red logo in the corner became synonymous with that kind of quality and that kind of vibe, and as I say, I think why I was announced by Roadrunner is because no one has done anything like it since. You know, it's, yeah, well. I guess I was blessed enough to work for Roadrunner, which I would I say would be the biggest independent label at the time, and then on a global basis. And then I also was blessed enough to work for Victory Records. Yeah, yeah. That well, that was I would say then became they became as Warner Brothers ate up um, Roadrunner. Victory was still an independent mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, between the, all the hardcore and then they kind of moved into the emo, you know, with Taking Back Sunday, Thursday, Hawthorne Heights. I mean, they were, it was printing money. It was ridiculous. And then Metalcore came into play mm. with bands like Amur, A Day to Remember, things like that. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to work for both labels. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, your perspective will be incredibly unique. Yeah, and it, it sometimes it bums me out because with Roadrunner, I mean, it's kind of just an imprint within Warner Brothers, and then they're, you know, they're they're they've brought the imprint back because it's a brand, but it'll never be the same. Never, it'll never be never be the same, and you know, they're just I think probably from a other than like catalog, probably the only young thing that's on there is Code Orange. Yeah, I mean, you could uh, you could argue Trivium's still young, but um, yeah, but yeah, they, but yeah, you're right. I mean, Trivium as well because Trivium, well, Trivium actually was on Victory at one point. Were they? Yeah, for the for the for the. Oh, was it I believe Emma? so. I might have to go back and look. I might uh, just to make sure, but um, I'll look after we get offline. Yeah, and I'll, yeah. I, I believe I thought it was, but anyway, that's okay. So. So then, so then, how did, did you start out by reach? Did you reach out the case? Ah, yeah, it's interesting. The um, case has obviously didn't do any interviews or anything like that. Um, so I've had a few people ask me that question, and the answer is just a resounding no because I know he won't be interested. He's a, he's a bit shy in some ways. Yeah, I mean, if 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 I was presented with an audience with case. Even in the run-up, I'd, I'd pretty much say to keep the mysticism, I'd do a long-form interview with Case, and then at the end of this project, I'd have it as like a treasure hunt. If you're that bothered about all these long-form interviews I've been doing, 
here's here's like a, a treasure an online treasure hunt like the cicada 3301 I've, i don't know if you're aware of that but that kind of thing i'd make it i'll put it behind many different veils so anyone who really cares can find it but um to give it that sense of mysticism because i know he likes that um yeah, he, yeah he's also kind of a a matter of fact kind of guy. Yes. So it's like, he's like a, you know, he, in a, in a typical kind of like uh Dutchman slash German kind of like mentality. Hmm. It's what one word answers, you know? Yeah. 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 It'd be interesting though, because um there's so many different, there's so many different perspectives, so many different narrators, if you will, uh, who see things very differently. And obviously in the music industry, everything is remembered slightly differently. So it'd be interesting to get it from the yeah. horse's mouth, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I got there, I think, uh, maybe 92, I think 92, I got there. Okay. Cause I, cause I worked for, uh, well, I started on retail in Chicago. And mm-hmm. then I'll just try to get you fast forward quickly through that. Cool. Uh, started managing a band, Band got signed through uh, Metal Blade, um, you know, through Faley and Slagle. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought me to the Concrete Convention. Do you know Concrete Management and Marketing? No, I'm not aware. Oh, that's another mm-hmm. historical company. It, it They were a company that was, they had a management company at the time when I joined. They had Kip Winger and they had Metal Church. And then on the marketing company, they had four when metal started to boom, they were like an outsource service for all the labels, manager companies, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened is they, then they had a, they have a convention. I think it was 10 years plus. So think about being in a hotel, Mm -hmm. the hotel with the Sheridan Burbank and it's taken over by all metal heads. And you've got over the course of the years, You've got Iron Maiden playing in the hotel, Judas Priest, <laughs> Anthrax, Slayer, playing in a hotel yeah, over the yeah. time. And, and then you've got panels. So you got the panels where it could be me with Lon Friend from Rip Magazine, with Lane Staley, with um, what's his name from um, uh, Navarro. You know, mm-hmm. So you'd be on a panel. So you'd have fans, you'd have industry. So... I, they brought me out to the first concrete convention, the metal blade people, mm-hmm. and then concrete hired me. Well, it ended up the, the marketing company became so big because metal became such a boom. Our clients were Allison Chains and Slayer and Metallica and mm. the, the list, the, the long list of the eighties. And then uh, the management company, we ended up with Rob Zombie, white zombie, as yep. well as Pantera. Wow. So, so it was that was that's another that's a, a fascinating story in itself as a company as well. And so many people went on to do great things. But anyway, then I was at Roadrunner, I'm sorry, at Concrete, mm-hmm. an investor came to me and said, Why do I why do I need to pay your company? I'll pay you and you start the label. Everybody wanted to get into the business at that point, you know, with all kinds of money, people money with money and stuff because they were enamored, you know, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Of course. Really, that's what it was. And dudes that had money said, I want to be in the game, but I don't know <laughs> what I'm doing. So uh, I started a label with the money. It was very successful, got off to a great start. I did a deal with uh, Red for U.S. distribution, 
I did the rest of the territories with Case. Mm -hmm. And then Case actually, I think a year and a half into it, he said, I want to hire you. And he hired me as a vice president of marketing uh, for the company. And so I left Energy Records. That was a label. So we went from metal blade to concrete to energy very quickly. You know, Mm -hmm. we went through that whole process between 89 I made 90 and 92. I joined Roadrunner. I joined as a vice president of marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> when I first got there, we were in a circle, like, you know, all of our desks were in a circle in one room. And so you were kind of, it was, it was very odd. I never worked in a situation. I mean, it was open. It was an open office before there were open offices. I mean, literally like, you know, the guy next to me, the guy next to you, it was like a big one circle. And it was one o small, for open. Yeah. Yes. And one, co- one small uh, conference room. And then the administrative people were in a back room, Doug and everybody else in the other room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then eventually moved into a nice office and, Case came up to me, he said, in his in his very like very one word kind of way, he says, fire the sales guy. I want you to be the sales guy because you know how to speak to people. You're great at presenting, you're you're, you know, whatever. And I go, I don't want to be a sales guy. I like what I do. He goes, You will be the sales guy. I go, All right, I'll be the sales guy. And so I became the sales guy. And that's how it became. But it's given me a great career that I'm still working. I'm at Universal Music now mm. uh, with one of their subsidiaries. And uh, but that's how that happened. So that's awesome. kind of the quick story of how I got there and how I started out as a marketing guy, head of marketing, and then I became the head of sales. It's interesting. I, I was going to ask you if they created that position for you on the basis that it still was like in its infancy, the, the U.S. office and the expansion. Well, I guess without having, I'm not having an ego or anything, but, you know, I became the face to the company, to the outside right. in the U.S. Because, you know, I had a great way of speaking, presenting, mm-hmm. negotiating, and coming up with ideas to get you to where you needed to go. Right, right. So, so that's kind of the intro into it. And then I think you asked a question about, I guess the one question would be about the whole typo thing, Right. I had one about the typo thing, but I did have one before that, which was um, yeah. what you, the role included. Just because I'm just because from a record company, because I obviously work in the financial industry, regrettably. So my yes. idea of retail is different from a record industry idea of retail. So yeah, so going, yeah, yeah. I, I think you've well, do you. Do you want to ask questions, or should I tell you what it is? I'll I'll, I'll frame it by saying was the role, as you say, is the face of the company, but at the same time, as the head of sales, you'll probably have some input into the P&L. You'll be looking at every product and working with the project, uh, the product managers to say, this record needs this budget to, to push. This record's not going to work or whatever. I was wondering if that was kind of the, what was the scope of the head of sales, especially at that time in the CD boom? Well, the, the, the market, head of marketing put the overall, like which I did at one point, you put the overall arching plan together uh, and present that to, I guess, at the time, Doug and Case, you know, and fin- and your finance guys. So you're making sure that, okay, we, sp- we spent X to sign, we have X for tour support, which is recoupable, but then there's the marketing costs, which aren't recoupable. And there is marketing costs both on the, I call it, visibility side, which is mm. more marketing, 
you know, for radio and promotion and VH, you know, for uh, video, et cetera. And then there's the sales side as well. Mm-hmm. So those are the, that's, those are the hard costs that are not recoupable. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you, you obviously, you put together a, I used to put together like a grid of all the accounts. And what I did is I put together what the marketing would be, what I'm getting in return and what the costs are and what I'm getting in terms of the units. And then the units you'll know basically, basically after you break down manufacturing and royalties and all the other stuff, you know, how much profit or EBITDA you'll make off of that mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, after you get going. But if you could get some, if you could get a, a, um, no matter where I've worked at all the different labels I've worked, if you can get a, uh, velocity and the going on a record it's you it kind of takes care of itself mm-hmm. and you're spending less and less money going forward because now there's a demand for it yeah so yeah. supply and demand so i don't have to spend the money for the visibility retail wise it's all coming more free as, mm-hmm. as you go forward in that and that would probably so, be um i was gonna say that would probably be kind of absorbed by the retailer once you build a relationship with them in a weird way because you'd spend x on marketing but the more you work with certain people that kind of arm would automate itself in a weird way because they know what they sell i guess yeah well you know there's a trust fact you have to be able to manage your company's expectations and making sure that you don't get over your skis and you keep the profitability there but you also have to earn the trust of the retailers from both sides. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a balance of giving them what they need within reason, but also making sure that you're keeping checks and balances with your own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found, well, I think what Case liked about me was, is that like I would start out, I would take out the buyer to dinner. I said, Hey, why don't you get, you know, send, send something home, you know, let's get something for your wife, bring her, you know, what kind of dessert do you want? See, so you, you know, you say the dessert and that. So, so then they, you know, you bring home the cheesecake or whatever they bring home and that next time I go, bring your wife along, you know, so now you bring the wife and next time they go, how about if you come to our house and have dinner? And that's the <laughs> kind of relationships I built with the buyers. I built a, a personal bond with them mm-hmm. And the other thing I did is, you know, being in New York, you know, where, where especially during the heyday of New York, now it's mm-hmm. not so, so much of a heyday anymore. But, you know, if the buyers were in Minnesota, if they were in Amarillo, Texas, if they were in um, uh, Albany, New York, wherever they were, you know, uh, Fort Lauderdale, I spent much time learning about where they live and the marketplace rather than talk about New York, New York, New York, mm-hmm. it was all about like your area mm-hmm. where you live. Let's go out to your places. You know, I used to hang out. Like I wouldn't just fly in and fly out. I made sure I gave everybody quality time and I mm-hmm. took an interest not only in them, their families, but wherever they lived. Mm-hmm. And that's how I built my relationships over the years. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, some of them are still in place from yeah. those days, believe yeah. it or not. It helps to be nice. Talk, yeah, and they still talk about the Roadrunner days. It's so, <laughs> so funny, too. 
Yeah. And then, yeah. so that's, and so that's how the, the relationships are built. And of course, you know, we talked about, you know, the, you, you want to make sure that you're getting your, your ROA and ROI in place and you're getting the most value for what you're spending. Understanding if it's a developing artist, you have to invest into it. And you're not going to see that. Mm-hmm. You also have to know that if it's not working, stop spending. Don't put good money into bad. Yep. Uh, hopefully, you get the artist over the hump and it starts to take care of itself in mm-hmm. some ways. And then eventually, if you get to the next record, everybody wants it. Yeah. You spend less money on the second record and the third record if you start to build a bandit's catalog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that all make sense? That makes perfect sense. And it's interesting because Case understood that without being a metalhead. He's very good for financials. Yeah. He understands money. And he was very good about that. And I think he gave everybody a trust, autonomy, and freedom. Just deliver for me. Yeah. That yeah. He was very good about, like, he didn't get in your way. And he, he didn't, he didn't um, as long as you were good at communicating what he needed to know, mm-hmm. and he saw the results of whatever the vision was, he, that's all he wanted. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That's, that's that's what makes him a good leader, isn't it? Though I guess because it's an inclusive atmosphere, as a, as opposed to hit it, you know, hit it till it works. Yes, he was yeah. very good about that. Yeah. So when you join in 1992, so you're coming in as <clears throat> as the labels expanding and trying to move away from death metal and thrash metal and trying to take a more alternative route. Well, it. it I got there. Um, well, I guess you would start. I mean, you you had your they were still very underground, but you had your Carnivore, which became typo negative. You had mm-hmm. a very early Sepultura. You had a very early Fear Factory. Yep. It was nowhere near, I don't think, the well, we when I got there, it was still a very underground label. Uh, yeah. You know, and then I guess this kind of leads into the typo story, which was the breakthrough for Roadrunner. Uh, Case came to me and said... Um, I want a gold record. <laughs> I go like, okay, all right, all right. Let's we let's talk about the bands and all that. And the decision was typo negative. But then the next, really, so you, you actually you actually sat. The objective was Case went. I want a gold record, and you went okay. Well, we did as if that wasn't the objective all along. Yeah, I mean, it kind of came together. We both thought about the same thing because I think about like if you think about typo negative they were different than all the other kind of what I call thrash death sound bands in that they, they certainly had a different sound and, and could be, they had the best opportunity for back then when you had like, you not only had college radio, but you had AOR, you know, your crossover Mm -hmm. rock and roll, hard rock was all over the country. So that was, so that was happening. So that was your best shot. So I guess that was the, I, it was the obvious choice, but you also had to talk Pete out of leaving his job because he worked for the park district and he was making good money. He had benefits, you know, he, he was, a you know, he was a, he was, you know, he thought about his future and his life. You know, it just, he wasn't just doing some fly by night thing. He said, you know what, I'm making good money. I'm working for the city. I, I got benefits. It's a stable job. I can do this till I retire. You know, so it's not like, so it, it took some pulling teeth to get him to 
finally agreed to make the band a full-time gig for himself. But then we told him we would invest into him and do all the right things that we were supposed to do, which we we obviously did. But it's still chancy and nervous because you're saying yeah. you're you're a young dude and you're you're telling you to walk away from a good job, a good stable mm-hmm. job, to do, to take a chance with this, take the ride. You know what I mean? And and he did. And, and knock on wood, fortunately, everything came to came to play. So the, I think the first step was you know the we had to come up with how do we get this thing to 500,000 if, if my memory serves me right and again this is a long time ago uh we might have been about a hundred thousand on on what we've shipped at that point maybe 125 so we mm-hmm. came up with the concept of the digipack which was you know the extra cd with the extra tracks it was a nice beautiful gay fold uh package and that got us another like 50, 75,000 out in the marketplace because it gave you extra tracks. It was a beautiful package. So now you've got some, you know, you've got, and I should backtrack a bit. So after part of what the, the, the deal was with the gold record was, is that he said that I will bring your, <laughs> I will bring those red people, um, you know, I will bring them to Amsterdam for the weekend. Uh, if you get, that'll be what we'll do for them. And I go, okay, that's a pretty cool thing I need to do. That's a lot of people, you know, <laughs> salespeople. So they, they, there's a convention called NARM, which is the United States, I would call it the retailers and manufacturers, which were, were manufacturers and distributors and le- record labels. And then you had all the retailers. Mm-hmm. And so they they had a spring one, which was for all everybody, including you know the, your big accounts like your Best Buys and WalMarts and Targets and big box retail. And then they also had, in the fall they had one was just for independent retail slash one stop distributors, which put product into independent retailers. So we happen to be in okay. Scottsdale, Arizona. And I, I got the the different people from Red, you know, that you had your VP of sales and you had your regional VPs. And I said, let's take a drive out to the desert. I got a, a big cooler full of beer. And we we walked up on top of a mesa and sat down. And uh, I said, hey, we, we if we can get this record of gold, I'm going to take you and the staff to Amsterdam for the weekend and which was seems like an unbelievable kind of thing to do. It's a lot of expense and all that. I mean, really, that's how much I think case really wanted this. And so that's where we kind of, after we got back from uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale area, that we started to put the plan together. The DigiPack came first. So that was a good place to get us back into retail, keep the interest going. But then I, but then it was all about, the marketing and making sure that the radio and get the radio escalated. And then it was also about the touring aspect. And I remember, I think we did dates with Nine Inch Nails, uh, Motley Crue, Pantera, uh, Jackal, you know, when they were hot for a minute and that, and, and, a, and, a, and a whole, a whole slew of different metal hard rock type bands. 
And this thing just started to escalate and, and kind of take on its life of its own. You know, it started, the momentum started. And then there was the whole Playgirl thing with the visibility there. I think actually Jesse from Jackal was in there as well the month before. So there was a lot of visibility, a lot of interest. You know, they were good-looking dudes. You know, they all mm-hmm. gothy-looking and all that with their black long hair and all that. And Pete was obviously the, the jolly green giant, and he was uh, yeah. an anomaly. He looked like he should be a basketball player in that. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, I think that – so, so that's kind of how that whole thing came together. And then we eventually got the little record and eventually Kay said to me, now you have to book the travel. I go, book the travel. I mean, so I had like, you, know, you had people like in Seattle and LA and Dallas, and I had to pull them all together, get them to New York. And then we put them on a KLM flight and then yep. we flew out together uh, to Amsterdam and it was a great weekend of just, you know, Case taking us out to the countryside and the windmills. Oh, we right. did a, uh, <clears throat> what he called it, in the, the, he got a boat and we had, you know, beer and food and all that as we went around in the waterways. We went to the Heineken uh, brewery and, you know, we did all the usual tourist stuff that's fun and a lot of just good times in that. So that, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the typo story. But then it kind of escalated everything. It opened up the, the door. Like anything, if you get a hit at a label, it'll open up the door for other hits because now it gives you leverage. And that's how it's mm-hmm. always worked no matter where I've been. Once you get one through, things can start to open up. And then it opened up. You know, for the other bands, they're getting better tours. You can package them together. You can package mm-hmm. them separately. But, the, you know, everything gets better once you start to get your – you're on the radar of the big boys, I call it. You know, the big boys are big-to-box retail, uh, big AOR radio, mm-hmm. uh, VH1 or MTV, Viacom. That's when you've, like, made it and you got their attention – that will take that will escalate everything for you. And then I think we talked about the diversification. I think they brought in what Howie Abrams and he, yeah. you know, his his thing was more he, he was kind of into a, a hip hop phrasing, you know, kind of thing like with 24 seven spy with his band and He's always been around the punk scene and the hardcore scene of New York and, and try to always bring in kind of that stuff. And then we had a guy, um, uh, Jeff Pakman. And yes. Jeff Pakman, he, he brought the alternative vibe. So there was Blue Mountain and yep. Kevin Salem and a few other things uh, that diversified us. Now, it didn't really it didn't really take off because now you're kind of getting off the brand a bit. I think you have to stay within the brand because, you know, you knew that little red candy bar logo. And I think you have to stick with what you know and what's, you know, what is going to sell because the cons- you don't want to confuse your consumer. You confu- your consumer was a metalhead. Yeah, yeah. And he loved thrash, death, hardcore, and all that other stuff. And I think you try things not everything's going to work. It probably was not the, the best idea, but you tried it and you know, you move on from it. I'm, so I'm going to, I'm going to hit you with two sort of questions to sort of take what you've said there and make it try and articulate the business side of it. So with typo, the thing that has amazed me about that story is the fact that Kay said, I want a gold record. I mean, he, he decided now was the time 
And then obviously you, in, 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 yeah, in your capacity of head of sales was able to go, okay, well, here's our roster. Here's the performance. Here's the ones that are somewhat ubiquitous. Um, here's the death metal. Here's the thrash metal. You're not going to get the gold. I'm really fascinated. Do you, do you have an idea why Case thought that was the time? Or do you think he was just like, all right, I've been doing this 12 years now. It's time to. <laughs> I think he just said, I want it now. You know, right. I think he just, you know, if he, he, I want it now. And, you know, yeah. he was kind of a matter of fact kind of guy. And you don't argue with him. Just go with it. You know, I mean, it's kind of like when he told me I'm the sales guy. Just go with it because you're not going to win the argument and that. Um, but it, like I said, it, behind all that was he was a good hearted person. And yeah. that. and uh, I think the time was then he wanted that gold record. He, I think the obvious choice was typo because, like we said, it wasn't going to be Sepultura. It wasn't going to be Fear Factory or any of those bands because you're not going to get them the visibility on a bigger level, on a bigger platform. You know, as we, we I think you said, like with Sepultura, with Chaos, it, they moved into a more groove metal, which they kind of followed into the Pantera vein. Mm-hmm. And that gave them a, a wider reach as well. And I think that's, and then I think Fear Factory became more of a technical death metal band. And so they, for, within their realm, they grew in their own way. So everybody grows, hopefully, but stays within the, I guess, within somewhat of a boundary of what you are, where you came from, which is Roadrunner. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it's staying within the kind of the heavy metal classification. There's many subgenres within the, the, the classifications and all that. So why, why the diversification then? Was that case communicating, let's try and be major? Uh, well, I, I don't. I think the gold record was just the gold record. But then I left. I left at the time of Nickelback. I was gone. Oh, so you so, were there until like what? Nearly two thousand. Uh, no, no. I left in ninety uh, five. Oh, okay. okay. Now, what happened? Yeah. So I left. I got a job with um, Mercury Records. Mm-hmm. So I ju- I made it to the big league then. And so now I was with Kiss, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, uh, Scorpions, yeah. Rush. My world changed. I was and now I made it to the, you know, where it, it was, e- I mean, much more demanding because now you have big time managers and you yeah. have bands that like, you know, understand what they want. And, you know, but I, you know, I remember my first show was kiss. Yeah. I had, you know, that was my first show at, at Mercury records. And I got all these big, you know, Danny Goldberg was our CEO. He was the manager of uh, Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And so he was our CEO and you had all, you know, you had like all these high end big time people. I went from Roadrunner where you kind of had a lot of managers that were friends of the band in a lot of ways to being in that league. Yeah. So I left already. I was going, I was gone by Nickelback. Yeah. And I got, I was there for a bit, just, I think a bit of Slipknot, but not enough. You know, I left at that point. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, So, have you ever had to push back on one of the records that was coming out in your, in that three year period? Obviously I imagine your working day is okay. We've got 10, 12, 15 products out this year. There's a simple, there's a metabolic rate at which they're being pushed out. So one will be at 
as you say with typo, it was a year yeah. process. There's one that's coming out next week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So are you, are you vetting the whole process on all these projects that are going on? Well, I think it's, it's, I think as we got into the, the age of um, sound scan, mm-hmm. so you can, you can document every sale and BDS, which you can document every spin, Mm-hmm. It was very easy. So if a radio guy, if you're following the trends at radio, as an example, uh, both not college, but more your AOR radio, album orientated rock. Mm-hmm. It, it, and let's say he says, Jim, I got an ad in Dallas. I need to convert those into spins and build up our spin count. So the more times you hit the consumer over the head All with right. the, with hear it on the radio but i would like then talk to my red people and talk to the accounts and i would say hey i need a little bit of a favor here i need to seed the market mm-hmm. so w- whether it was at that point it could be best buy it, all the big boys i was dealing with as well as all the independent retailers and now you're you're legitimized roadrunners mm-hmm. legitimized and so i say we need to seed the market to make sure i have enough inventory there to give me an idea. So when SoundScan comes out every Wednesday at the time, mm-hmm. and you could take, you can match up the radio and say, okay, I got, I went from getting added the week prior. I got three spins on this station, two spins here. And what are my sounds? What's what are my sales? My sales are two pieces. So I would tell the radio guy, we need to work harder on getting the conversions and getting more radio there. And then I'll, I'll, I have the product there already. So I'm in place for us to score. If, if we can get, if we can get the consumer to connect the dots. Right. Okay. It's all about connecting the dots. It's a web, isn't it? It's a web and you're at every cross point going, is this primed for a sale? Yeah. And then it's the same thing. If you could, if once we got into the video age, it, then it's about, getting us on headbangers ball mm. and getting the visibility there. And then there's the other part of it is that you would want to do um, making sure you're getting all the interviews. Like for instance, there's another thing with typo. I backtrack a second. Once we got, once we got to the point where people knew who they were, they were legitimized. I would bring them out on the road to see the accounts and so we'd go to the major accounts. We'd either be playing in the market and I'd invite them to the show or I'd just take them on a promotion tour and just take them in and do the whole, you know, grip and grin thing. Mm-hmm. We love you. Come on out. Let's take some pictures, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. you started to, you, you build, like, it's like anything else. You, you use the artist, at, they're the power of the artist to be able to, make the connection not only myself but more importantly because it's all about the music you know i'm only as good as the music you know all of us are when people think that they're bigger than the music shame on them and that's where things go sideways mm-hmm. uh, but you know once you connect the dots let's say with the title with pete or the rest of the guys with best buy or other accounts you're doing the same thing at radio you're connecting all of those dots so there's a relationship there now. Yeah. Now, now those people, the gatekeepers, let's call them the gatekeepers at, in all those different areas, retail, radio, video, media, you, what you want to do is you want to build a relationship 
not only your own relationship, but you want to build a relationship with the artist and your contacts, your mm. gatekeepers. And that way, now they'll do more for that artist because they say, oh, that guy, man, he was so awesome. Took pictures of me, autographs, you know, he signed mm. something for my kid, you know, and we, you know, it's that kind of, and that's what you, you, that's part of the whole relationship thing that you do. Mm. Now, once you, you did that with typo, it gives you a little more, like I said, besides the, the sales puts Roadrunner on the map on a different perspective, but it gives you more leverage for the next artist and the mm-hmm. next artist. And that's how you, you build the, the brand, you build the bands themselves, and you build a trust between the gatekeepers and what you do and what you have. Yeah. You know, yeah. again, like it's only, yes, I, do I have a good gift to gab? Do I, am I a good presenter? Am I, yeah, seems like it. Everybody mm-hmm. seems to be happy with my thing, but it's always about the artists. If yeah. you got the artists and especially if you got artists that'll work hard and do the things you need to do, it makes it a whole lot easier. Mm-hmm. And especially if they're good speakers themselves and they're good talkers. I mean, you know, uh, it just, the love, the love fest comes together. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you've got, then you get your, all that momentum will build you and help you with the next band and the next band and the next band. Not all of them will get through, mm-hmm. but you'll get better shots mm-hmm. with each one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brugera come out with their debut, I believe it was in 1993. The yes. cover is a decapitated head. So yeah. how are you pushing that to Best Buy? Uh, you don't, you know, you have to understand <laughs> that you like, you, 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 that was a very, very underground record. And, right. you know, you also have to pick your choices. And if, if that was a side project for Dino specifically, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, his bread and butter was Fear Factory. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it, it was, it, it created a lot of like, you know, noise and it created a lot of uh, like, oh my God, and all that. It was, more of a, it was more of an independent record. Right. I, isn't that funny? I think that Facebook picture I'm wearing a Bookeria hat on too. I have a yeah. hat on, and that. But it's funny because I love the band, but there it's very underground, and yeah. you, you can't expect it to. You're not going to get into the major chains just because of the cover and everything. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Is this helpful? Might be. Oh, helpful. dude, this is this is incredible. I want to know how we bring metal to the the table again. Because I think like the disruption in the industry for the last 10 years has been like the streaming stuff, the priority setting on social media is not quite the same as it was in the 90s where you could engineer like the consumer a little bit more. So I'm trying to understand Well, Roadrunner did it best from an indie perspective because they understood the product. So how can we dissect that and understand that? And that's my contribution to the, the scene, I think. Yeah. I, I, and this I is perfect. Think- yeah, I you, you can if you need to get me on another time, of course, and mm. uh, however I can help. Yeah, I, I think in this current environment, I really believe what's been the saving grace has been vinyl. Yes, I, I it, it's it's an incredible, incredible. Well, first of all, believe it or not, Walmart is full on in, and they're now going full store where they got like 7,200 stores mm. and they're online and they're getting a lot of exclusive color variants. But if you're a smart metal band and you've got a base, you can almost do everything D to C now. And yeah. what's happened is um, 
you know, like a band that has a bass will say, oh, let, let's take something that's kind of a cultish thing like I Hate God, you know, the yes. band I Hate God. Uh, so they're putting out a record, I think, in a month or so. Yep. They have a Century Media version, variant, a U.S. version, mm-hmm. Revolver Magazine version, a merchandise version, a U.K. merchandise version, BB and I hate God fan. I started, okay, I bought the first four variants. I said, okay, now it's out of control because <laughs> it's the same record. It's just yeah. different colors. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So, but that's what's, but if you're, one thing I can say about people who are into metal, they're all in and they like physical product and they still collect all the shirts and they're, they're, it's all about tangible items. Mm-hmm. And if you can actually, and then let's say you do you do an autograph version. You can do the autograph version. Then there's all the bundles besides all that. The different bundles with different things. You know, I mean, you could be as crazy as, uh, you know, Clutch, right? You know, Van Clutch. The high-end bundles. This one comes with the skateboard mm-hmm. and a couple other things. But if you buy this one, based on the theme of the record at the time, you get this beautiful wooden box mm-hmm. autographed on the box and you get a hatchet inside, a real yeah. hatchet. Yeah, it was yeah, about I'll... like it was and then we have the third version, which again it comes with some different goodies, but then you get the you get the clutch hammer. <laughs> you know, because it was all about like um breaking the shells of the blue crabs because mm-hmm. they're from Baltimore and they were cooking and it was all the theme of the whole thing, and that's everything sold out. Mm-hmm. Everything sold out, and everything was like two hundred dollars, two fifty, for the package for the bundle. And so, you, in that world, the D to C is so important. Mm-hmm. It, you know, not only from your your record label, which are mostly indies, your band camp, and, and all of those, and then those other areas that you can maybe work with, like Revolver, mm-hmm. example, and you can do an exclusive with them. And it's all about D to C now. But one thing I was going to say was when I was speaking to Richard Bengloff, he was making a comparison between the 90s market, which is one album cycle. Let's assume you're Motorhead and you're pulling out an album a year. <clears throat> you've got your $15 crowd who are going to buy the album. You've got your $30 crowd who are going to buy the album and come to the show because they do it annually. And then you've got your $150 who are going to buy the collector's edition, go to the gig, do the whole thing. These days, it's as you say, we're now moving into, we've created a space with a $60 um, consumer, maybe if you're into streaming as well, that, that maybe the 75, 80, that, that region is now opened up. And I think that's where just, it is. I just bought, like, you know, I'm still a fan. Um, okay. let me see if I can without my wiring. Whoop, can you see? Yeah, <laughs> and that's just a little corner of the house, and that mm-hmm. my house is like a Oh, I've lost your audio. Has the mic slipped out? How about now? That's better. <laughs> yeah, so the uh, what I was going to say is that Motorhead, for the 40th anniversary of Ace of Spades, mm-hmm. the high-end box, which I have over here, is this heavy wooden box that looks like a, um, think about from the Western days, it would be an ammunition box mm-hmm. full of goodies. It cost me $300. And they sold out of them all. Three hundred dollars. 
for the yeah. box. Now, I, I think the box is amazing itself, just the mm. box, and then all the goodies inside. But just to show you that the consumer, as we've grown older, and I'll use another analogy, I'll take Metallica as an example, who, who are those guys are pushing 60. Mm-hmm. Their fan base is in the 50s, and their fan base has no problem spending forking over $500 for a book assigned. They have no problem. Um, Let's say uh, they're doing, you know, they they have that all within my hands. That's their charity. And they're doing a charity in conjunction with, with Wolverine boots and all of that money goes to the scholarship fund for the trades, you know, for Mm -hmm. underprivileged people who, want to learn how to go get a trade. They yeah, put yeah. people through school. They have no $400 boots that just have a small logo on it. Yep. Sold out mm-hmm. now. So metalheads with money. Yeah. <laughs> metalheads with money. You would not think of it, but now you, the guys are guys and girls are on their f- late forties, fifties, pushing 60. Yeah, and they have no problem spending three hundred dollars, five hundred dollars on stuff. No way, no way. Metal people. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. I was going to ask that last week. We kind of touched on it in terms of the the gold record and like the top forty stuff. I, I think I was asking, you know, in case like celebrate these milestones or anything like that. But I think the answer is really nobody gave the the brand the credibility which it so desperately wanted. I. I think that when you talk about awards and stuff like that, that I don't think that the consumer, especially the metal kids are really thinking about that. Mm. I think that that's the credibility came to the industry that you finally are making it in the bigger, bigger realm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, Okay. I'm going to jump into the questions that we didn't get to last time. And I'm going to start with the most boring one. So, I am a 13-year-old boy, and I've got $10, and I walk yeah. out of the arcade and, and past a record shop, and I see a vinyl. It's all sort of green and tinted, and it's got two ladies kissing each other, and something within me awakens, and I give that $10 over to the the, the man in the shop who gives me the, the bloody kisses by typo. Let's track that $10. Let's figure out how it's just, obviously uh, we can be completely generalized on it and figure yeah, out. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a general, you know, just to kind of give you an idea what it takes into it. You have to put in there, you know, all your manufacturing costs. You, you have to put in your distribution costs, mm-hmm. your shipping costs. So that all kind of breaks down into like probably, if you put it to perspective, I'm just going to make it up you know, just kind of a rough estimate yeah, about yeah. a couple bu- couple bucks, you know, by the time you do all that stuff, mm-hmm. give or take, you know. Yeah. Then you've got royalties. Royalties are different based on whatever is worked out with songwriters and all the other stuff. So let's say yeah. the royalties that go to the band are, and then they can divvy it up however they divvy it up with their lawyers after they get that. It's probably, you know, two bucks, two and a half bucks, Mm-hmm. So let's say right now we're at four and a half. So, you know, if you, if you give or take, we make about three and a half to four bucks, but understanding that we're spending hard money on marketing costs that yeah. are not recoupable. So that's when you say not, recoupable in, in my head, I'm like, well, everything's recoupable. If you, if you sell enough. It, well, no, it, it is what, how it works is the, 
you, generally the tour support is a recoupable to, to the record label. Every the marketing costs are free to the artist and a hard cost for for the label. So generally, uh. so so generally, it's, so it's Doug, Doug takes umbrage with this. <laughs> I know he says, he says that I don't like those terms. He said, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so you're, you, it's an investment. Um, it, I, I'll, let me go back to. Let's take that seat of my neighbors are pulling out. That's why. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. They, you know how they are. They sense everything. But I'll give you an example. Like in the when I worked for RCA Nashville for ten years yeah. on the countryside, uh, you know, my chairman said, no matter what. Now this is a bigger level of things going on. Our investment into the band. By the time you sign them, you cart them around. You, you know, you set up the radio, you send out all the stuff, you know, do everything is a million bucks. That's mm-hmm. a bigger level, just to give you an idea of the magnitude to, to develop an artist. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so the marketing costs could be, that's why you always have to watch, you have to present a, a, a P&L based on what you think the return on investment is mm-hmm. with your marketing costs of, you know, what I'm going to spend at, at metal radio, what I'm going to spend on a video, what I'm going to spend on, you know, at the time print ads, but you know, now it's, it would be digital ads, you know, mm-hmm. so you, you add all that stuff up and that's, you've got to go work your way backwards based on X amount of, you think that you'll ship, you know, at the end of the day on that cycle, mm-hmm. maybe let's say 50,000. Mm-hmm. And then you have to back out all those costs and see, is this profitable or do I have to cut back on my marketing? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then on the tour support, that is a recoupable cost. So before the band gets a penny of royalties, mm-hmm. they have to pay back those costs. The tour support is, um, is that measured? No, I, I, uh, let me just sort of like partition that over there for a minute so the tour support is typically is it paying the band's bills while they're away or is it paying their way on the tour the the yeah while while they're on tour so the band will present either their manager their accountant they'll present a what they need to to survive on the road you know so they're getting x and mostly back in those days you got you know your new band specifically even even like to get to the bus level, you had to start to really make some money, you know, yep. because you're, you know, if you're the opening band, you might be making two fifty a night, mm-hmm. $250 a night, maybe 500, you know, you know, you need, you get, you need rental of a van, you need gas, then you need hotels from time to time. Cause you can't yep. sleep in the van. You're sleeping upright in a van and a bus is a different deal because you can sleep in the bus. Mm. But, uh, yeah, so you have so they present that to the label, and then we grant them the money for how many weeks that tour is. But then they have to pay that money back before they make any money. Yeah, see? yeah. So, so that's their investment. But at the end of the day, if if things, I guess, materialize and you start to build momentum, we'll sell more records. They'll get more money on the road. Mm-hmm. You know, generally there's, you know, the merch thing, you know, now Case had a merch company too called Blue Grape. You know yes. about that. 
Felix something or other. I just he just called me for my birthday. <laughs> but they were, you know, it was Blue Grip was an excellent mer- merchandise company with good quality goods. So, mm. you know, the what however the deal was structured with Case to for the record side and then he did the merch. So everything was kind of all in house. Mm-hmm. You know, he was one of those they were one of the first labels to actually kind of really do a true you know, 360 deal, you know, so. I suppose that's, that's the key word, isn't it? There's, there's case takes everything, which is what it was called in the eighties. There's the 360 deal as we call it today. And what the word you've used there is the true 360 deal. Yeah. Forget the money. It's brand. Yeah. So, I mean, but, but the good news is we were a brand and if the band has legs and we can get this thing over the hump, they will become part of the brand and, and everything, everything kind of builds upon that momentum. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning as well. When we talk about recoupable and non-recoupable costs, one we're thinking from the record label's perspective and often people are thinking it from the band's perspective because they're fans, which makes sense. But I think that the distinguishing factor as well is the band as a touring mechanism and as an operation is separate from the label, which is why the recoupable element is kind of, it's dealt with more tran- more like a transaction because even though yeah. the label is kind of the employer of the band, it's the core mechanics of getting a band on the road and making money, you know, on the road. It's done on the management side. It's not actually, it's done yeah. as, through the band as a separate enterprise. So when you when you start compartmentalizing those two operations, it makes it a lot clearer. And yeah. through that as well, um, merchandising is therefore aligned to the label in that sense, isn't it? Well, That's the it, label the, the, having the mer- finger in the pie on the management side. No, the the merchandise is a separate business unit, separate entity. That's just the merchandise company, Blue Grape. So. Okay. Yes, Case owns Roadrunner. He owns Blue Grape, so he's going to be the one who, you know, he's the one that will, you know, garner the, you know, he'll he'll make the money on this deal once he pays all expenses and everything. Same thing. It's the same okay. thing. You have to, you got to print the shirts. You got to ship the shirts. You gotta, there's a lot, a lot of hard costs in there that you have to put into all that, and then you. So did- Go ahead. Do the band do the band make any money on the tour from selling shirts then? On the merch, uh, uh, on the mm-hmm. merchandise, you make more money on merch because the because the um, I think like let's take roughly uh, if you sell a t shirt for twenty five dollars, call it you know let's say that t shirt may cost you depending if it's a, a sing, you know like a regular black boxy t shirt, not a slim fit in that. Uh, it might cost you know two fifty, you know for the shirt total with the print if it's a one yep. one hit print, and then you've got your maybe you know you got to ship the boxes to wherever they're at you know ship them to the venue and then they put them in their van and all that. So at the end of the day, let's say it's three fifty, you sell the shirt for twenty five. So you mm-hmm. already see that there's a or you're making twenty dollars and some change, and then there's some sort of financial split of some sort of how much we make, how much the blue grape makes and how much the band mm-hmm. makes. And generally right, okay. it's the same thing. You give the band the money up front. And so you give the band, and that's another cost I should tell you about when you make a record, you have to give the, that's a recoupable cost as well, because you give the band 
the, the band puts, again, they present you a plan. They, they need $50,000 to make an album. Yeah, just, you know, use that as a rough, you know, for a metal band at that time mm-hmm. versus, you know, like a pop album in this world, it would, you know, cost you a million something, you know, so, you know, like a Taylor yeah. Swift record. So let's say $50,000 or $35,000. So that 30, they have to, you have to sell enough CDs or vinyl to get to the point of breaking even on the recoupable side of the of the album itself before you get the band gets paid. And then if they go on the road, another recoupable cost that they're, they're in the hole for. So you got to get yourself out of the hole, you know, before they make any money at all, they'll make some money off of the merchandise. But again, you're giving the band a, in many, it it either can go as a, a, um, you give the band a advance again, that they can work off the advance or mm-hmm. you do a supply deal depending on what that is. So, I mean, I would say most of these cases, I would say, again, there's a recoupable advance for merch, for music and for tour. So if you don't, it, it's a, it's a, it, think of it like it's a bank savings and loan. So if the, if the band is successful and we, we all win, then you know, you, you get the band makes back their money with the recoupable part. Mm-hmm. The label makes back their money on the recoupable yep. part and the band starts getting paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other mm-hmm. hand, if it doesn't work out, because not everything's going to get through the system, there's going to be a couple clunkers here mm-hmm. and there. You know, it's a tax write off, you know, at the end yeah, of the yeah. day, yeah. you know, so it's a loss. It's mm-hmm. a profit and loss, you know, so. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how that's the simplicity uh, to keep it in simple terms. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I didn't know the case Owen Blue Grape. I didn't know that was his operation. I guess that's. Yeah. Is there any other elements of the true three hundred and sixty I'm missing? So, in terms of the three hundred and sixty, it's all the intellectual property and associated um, transactions, including licensing, yeah. performing rights, all that stuff. That's really yeah, yes, and publishing. Yes. publishing. As we said, it's the event and pub- what's yeah. the difference between publishing and licensing and intellectual and the intellectual well, the public, the thought... go ahead i'm sorry i would have considered the publishing yeah 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 yeah. can you hear me mm-hmm. i can hear you okay good um that's cool i would have considered the publishing to be the same as licensing and performing i would have considered that any any transaction relating to the um usage of that ip that song yeah. that brand that logo that album art, i would have considered publishing to just be all of that is it yeah is it something it, different you know i i'm not as well versed on the publishing side because i don't work on that side of it so i guess we're gonna have to we, we may have to google it and and break it down you know i'd rather be honest and tell That's you right. i'm not a, i'm not a publishing expert and that so you've got your that's cool. You got your publishing companies like BMI and ASCAP and stuff like mm-hmm. that that you work with, and they try to get songs placed into things and that. And so, yeah. So, how's that sound? Is that okay? Right, right. No, that sounds about that sounds about right. It sounds like there's a, definitely in the Venn diagram of all those activities, there's definitely a crossover. But as you say, we don't yeah. use that specifics, and we should probably table it. 
but and you're also you're listed just before like all the other elements of the 360 deal into including like the music the merch and and, and those yeah. um the touring elements and things like that is there anything else that i might not have expected no that's about it so i mean if you get, yeah that covers it and so that that i mean that you know if you can get if a if the label can get their hands on all those three pieces and if the, if the band actually is successful, you'll make more money. There's more revenue streams, mm. you know? Yeah. So, but then yeah. that's, if it's successful. Band, yeah. I've got a big if, I mean, we, it's, it's very easy for me to just go left now and go, what are the ethics of this? But I don't care. <laughs> that's not the, that's not what the questions yeah. we're trying to answer on this. I don't think. It's, uh, to be honest, the more I come through this process, the more I'm really sympathetic towards the the labels for what you know for the services that yeah. they provide. At the end of the day, it's alchemy, isn't it? Music isn't having an inherent value; it's what people pay for it. And in the same way, yeah. you are creating gold out of nothing, and it still propagates. The, it propagates more metal happening. So yeah, fine. well, it, you know, <laughs> I mean, we're getting into more of a D to C today's day and age. We're not talking 20 or 30 years ago as it was, but today's mm-hmm. day and age, you wonder then how much the, if you're a smart band, you could do everything with your own social media and all that other stuff. And, you know, set up your yes. stores with, with Apple, Amazon, and then you can have your, your cop, you know, your, whatever your, your, different vinyl variants and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a much more independent world for the band itself. If they're willing to work for it, you know, where, and then if you think about it, uh, who are the, what are the brands out there that are epitaph is a brand, you know, epitaph, they, Mm -hmm. they have all those punk bands. Uh, Mm -hmm. Nuclear blast is a brand, you know, that it's a trusting band to the consumer. And Metal Blade's a brand. There's not that many. I mean, there's a few. I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe Century Media threw in there and Relapse. Yeah. But, I mean, not at the Eric. level I think of Metal Blade, Earache. But I think Metal Blade and Nuclear Blast and Epitaph are probably your three brands right now. So I'd you can do a lot of this. Napalm's going to... Yeah, yeah, Napalm's going to be there. I think now that Napalm, Napalm Records, they've just bought out Napalm SPD too. as of... Yeah, napalm as well. So I mean, you know, there's 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 places to go and places to have a uh, somewhat of a brand, but you know, that's um, it's a lot of bands could do things on their own too. It's a different yeah. world now yeah. than yeah. it was so then. To, 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 yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, to round that question off, then of that ten dollars, it's it's the it's um, variable depending on what the actual investment is on on the on the back end. But yeah, you get an, you get an idea of where the kind of the macros are: distribution and shipping. The tangible, true costs of producing yeah. a record are there, and the rest of that back end, including the IP and the band and the royalties and stuff, it's totally variable. Um, yeah, was there ever a band that was salaried on Roadrunner? Uh, I believe, as I recall, that in some cases, if if somebody needed some financial help when they're off the road, I think we did something like that. I believe so. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I think so, you know, where we, wow. we, we helped out. Yeah. I mean, it, and again, I didn't, you know, that part of it, I wasn't really involved in, okay. you know, in terms yeah, of that. Because your sales not. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm, I've got the finished product and now I got to 
you know, do something with it, hopefully mm. to, you know, to make money off of it. You know, that's really that what quite I would interesting. Because I would so that's probably the, Sorry, you're on. those kind of deals might have been, you know, like let's say the band goes to let's say the one of the A and R guys like Monty or something mm. like that. And says, "Hey, dude, you know we need some money here to survive. You know we're not mm. we're not working anymore. We're off the road. We're going to go on the road. We need, you know, can we get some? We're making this record. Can we get some help, financial help? You know that's a, and then he has to present that to Case and probably the finance guy. You know that makes sense because it's, it's interesting that because I guess like if you're a busy band on the road and you in between tours, you're like, well, no one's going to give me a job for." eight weeks yeah, you know what exactly. i mean there's, te- there's temp jobs and stuff but not all the time no that makes sense that makes sense okay yeah. um, i think it's a, i think it's more of a like a it's a judgment call based yeah. on a, a band and you know probably what we believe is going to be their future we better invest into them and help them out to keep them positive so they don't fall apart yeah, I know. I think Sepultura is a um, another example. I think after the Beneath the Remains cycle, they went back to Brazil, and I think Max and uh, Igor's mother was ill. There's a few things going on, and someone had to ring Casey and go, "Look, we can't even get the bus to town to get my mum to a doctor. Can you just give us some money, please? <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, it's all it's all over." And and then Case was like, "Yep, no problem." Throws a few grand at him. Yeah, and that's well, he was like, very. He was a very. If you if you made, if you gave him a common sense reason. Mm-hmm. He was very generous. Yeah. Case. Yeah. Very generous man. He he didn't have any problem about investing into things if it made sense. Yeah. You yeah. know, that's the one thing I could say about him. He's a very matter of fact, and then he expects results, but he but he's uh he's a very good man. Mm. He's very he's very good, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna move on to um Another question we missed. So this is more about the pragmatic side of the time that you were down uh, at the label at Roadrunner. Um, so you came in 92, and this is when the label was was diversifying and moving away from thrash, thrash and death. Um, at the end of that adventure, it didn't, I wouldn't say it failed. There was some good stuff in there. Blue Mountain had three albums. It ended yeah. up generating like the Ron Berman years of like that hard rock aesthetic. But the core strategy seemed to be okay, let's move a lot further out. Let's move into alt rock. Let's move into the grunge bit. And it wasn't reactionary because this is the start doing it before, never mind before the black album. Was it a challenging for you as head of sales to sort of like articulate and understand those as products? Or was it just business as usual for say a band like star star or some of the rap yeah. ones? You know, I, I think when you get into the non what the wheelhouse of what Roadrunner was and yeah. you get into these other areas and especially if they're developing artists, it's not that it's, I'm going to, because of my relationships and because of the brand itself, you're going to, you're going to get favors and you're going to get help. But, you know, I, I still believe that it goes back to the consumer being confused because it doesn't really, yeah. you know, that you, you Roadrunner is a brand built on death and, you know, mm. thrash and all this other stuff. And, they wouldn't understand Blue Mountain. They certainly wouldn't want Blue Mountain. Mm-hmm. And then you have to take, you're not dealing with your typical metal radio relationships. I mean, I deal with all the buyers, no matter yeah. what. I mean, those buyers buy other things other than metal too. But, you know, when you're dealing with 
metal radio and you're dealing with metal press and all this other stuff. And now you have to go out and find this new alternative world, triple mm. a world. I think that music was under the Kevin Salem and Blue Mountain were called triple a at the time, you right. know, so, so it was root, it was roots music, roots rock, mm. you know, like the same thing. So, you know, I thought, you know, it's like they're, then you try to bring in a specialist. And I believe Case brought in some people uh, that were more savvy in that world to see if they can break it through. I think we also had a, we had a dance label for a bit, just a very short period. It was a guy, John Trepp, who worked for us, who worked at Atlantic Records. He had an imprint there and he came in for a while. Was that dance label called Lafayette? Pardon? Was it called Lafayette, that dance label? Because I think the same happened in the UK. And it was called Lafayette. Uh, For the UK order. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember. Because none of it it materialized, Mm. you know, as Mm. as I recall. Because I tried to sell it, but there was no... It just didn't connect the dots. And then, so... You know, and I think, like... I think you're right. Like, Blue Mountain had a little bit of... They had some legs, because they seemed to, like... They were kind of in that Jayhawks kind of world, yeah, you know, yeah. and, that, and and so they kind of got a little bit of momentum. Kevin Sale never really did. Mm-hmm. I think the I think the product manager for all that stuff was Peter Cooper. Yeah, at the mm-hmm. time, they brought in Peter Cooper, and now Peter Cooper is he's living in Spain with his wife. He met his wife okay. there, and and he went to go work for some music label in Spain or Portugal, and um, and you know. We just reconnected on Facebook, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's the nice thing about Facebook. But yeah, so he was that product. Now I recall he was the product manager for that. And then I think John Trepp, he just kind of did everything himself because it was just him. He was you know, doing that he label. Was the, he was a specialist that did all that. But you know, you you try things. I, I give it the case. You try things, and mm. you know, it either works or it doesn't work. But at the end of the day. It, it all goes back to what you know best. And that's, yeah. you know, that's that heavy rock, you know, heavy metal and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. I think Alan had the same kind of um, take on it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Was like, because... you know, he was the guy moving into the retail and he like had those relationships. But if you have like a, a six foot eight cardboard cut out of piece steel, you know what you're doing with that. Whereas, yeah. you know, they say roots music is a bit different. Um, and if you think of, if you think about like AAA, it re- it's it's not one of those. It's a very docile um, fan base that yeah. you know. This it's not like a you got to like when we all the anticipation of a a metal record. The kids are ready to go. You know what I mean. At a record store, or if it was online, now it's online. Mm. But you know, with 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 AAA or that type of roots rock music, it's like whatever. You know, you, you'll you'll buy it when you buy it. It's not mm. no, nobody's rushing out for it. Yeah, yeah. You don't have that fanatic, the fanatic no. thirst for like the the, the the tangible elements of it. Um, have you got any? Because obviously your, your tenure was ninety-two to what you say ninety-five or something. Have you got any yeah. stories or anecdotes that I might have, have missed in my interrogation of the business uh, side? You know, I for me, well, the, the two things are I have to say that, like, and I mentioned this before, that if Case didn't force me to be the sales guy, 
I don't think I'd have the longevity of the career that I'm still doing this 30 years mm -hmm. later, you know, so that I'm always just like I'm grateful to uh, Brian and Mike Faley. I'm grateful to Case for pushing me in a direction I didn't want to go in, yeah. but it actually worked out to my favor in the, the end result. And I'm still at it, believe it or not. Yeah. At probably one of the more senior, not senior, senior meaning age, you know, in terms of like, unbelievably, I'm still at it. So thank mm -hmm. God, knock on wood. And I'm, I keep going. Of course, you know, the more, the, the monumental event is the, the whole typo negative Amsterdam event. But it was, again, I think the, the, Leading up to it with, you know, whether the, having the conversation with the red people, you know, on that Mesa, like I talked about, getting together and putting together a plan and doing all that other stuff and then executing it. It was a, it was a thing of beauty, how it all kind of came together on every level and how it came together with, you know, with Pete and the touring and all the other stuff. And yeah, it's a, it was a fantastic journey that, it once a year, those red people, somebody starts posting stuff and pictures and stuff like that. And, and then the reminiscing comes together, you know? So it's, it, it was, a, it, it, it impacted a lot of people in, mm -hmm. in a very joyous, happy way. So those are probably the two. I mean, to me, those are the two things, my career and that, and the typo negative, the whole, the yeah, whole yeah. process and the end, and the end game. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's, it was a joy to work there. It was, you know, I was being a metal guy anyway, it was a joy to work there. And I was just, you know, if you get, if you want to progress your career, I didn't want to be called the old metal guy, even though I am the old metal guy. So I, when I had the opportunity to go to Mercury Records, I had a lot of great, you know, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi, Kiss, yeah, yeah. Scorpions, Rush. I got into the big leagues, you know, and then we distributed Def Jam. So I was dealing with Lior and Russell Simmons and I had all those, you know, I remember carton JV around when he was just a young kid as an example. Wow. But what that did is it, it just legitimized me to the next level of my career, you mm -hmm. know? So, it, and then I kept going, you know, then I went to RCA Nashville. I took a left turn and went to country world, you know, but, uh, <laughs> But, you know, so I'm very grateful for all that. It, it, yeah. was a, it, was a, it was a three year run. And then, you know, it, I had the opportunity, you know, and, and then you kind of just go where the opportunity is and the money and stuff. I was going to ask, how did your relationship with Rodan end? But you've kind of alluded to it there. So did the opportunities come or were you looking for it? Uh, I, it was weird. I ha had three opportunities. Uh, one was, um, Trying to think of the label, the guy from Ireland bought it, Blackwell. Uh, they had the Frank Zappa catalog. They had Bob Mould uh, and a few other things. They were up in Salem, Mass. Right. So that, I can't remember the label. Oh, shame on me. Ryko Disc. Ryko. Right. So okay. Ryko. So Ryko came after me. And then the guy who actually owned Eagle he owned Sanctuary, Terry Shand. Right, okay. And Terry Shand tried to hire me to run Sanctuary, um, you know, wow. with Maiden catalog and Motorhead catalog and everything else. Mm -hmm. And my wife 
I, you know, my one wife that I had, she said, I don't want to move to Florida. So I didn't, didn't take the job. And then right after that, bam, uh, the mercury thing happened. So all of a sudden, I think my visibility raised to another yeah. level, my credibility raised, uh, my, my name value got up there. And then, you know, people started look, coming to me, mm-hmm. uh, for, you know, to see if I would be interested in working for them. And that, and I, I think the Mercury thing, I had to take it because I didn't need to go to Sanctuary anyway, and I didn't need to go to Reichel because it would just be an independent world anyway. Mm-hmm. Why would I want to leave Roadrunner for that? Yeah, you yeah. know, because I, I worked at the best independent label, but the opportunity to work for Mercury, now that's a legendary, legendary major label. Yeah, you know, in terms of like history and stuff like that, and, and a brand, and so. Yeah, I had to take that job. And it also put me, I, you know, I, I was hired by Danny Goldberg, you know, mm-hmm. Danny Goldberg from Nirvana fame, yep. you know, so it put me in a completely different stratosphere, you know, of things. So, well, the last time I saw a case was I, I took the, Felix got me the interview, recommended me for the job of Bravado. Bravado merchandise bought blue grape so okay. felix, yeah so felix and a couple other you know uta and some other uh employees were working at bravado they were looking for a new head of sales to run the, the u.s operation and i took the job and uh, and then rotor happened to be having their christmas party right when i came i started december 1 and it was, I think, probably the last Christmas party, official Christmas party. What year Legend- are we talking? They were legendary. Parties. What year are we talking? That would be 90, uh, I'm sorry, 2009. So I saw a case. That, so so I left- just before Warner's, Warner's at the door. Yes, Warner's yeah. at the door. So that would be the last party, and I saw a case at the party. So I had not seen case from... Let's see, 1995 yeah. all the way to 2009 mm. was the first time I saw him. Was he happy to see you then? Yeah, no, I mean, he was very polite and, you know, I mean, he's a gentleman, you know, I mean, he's a true mm. gentleman. So, yeah, it was, and, and I came in there with Felix. I walked in with Felix and that. So, I mean, he, uh, you know, and who cares, you know, Felix worked for him too, you know, so yeah. it was kind of, it was nice to see everybody past and present. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think at the time you only had, I mean, you still had some employees that were there from kind of like the Montes and some backroom people. Mm -hmm. And and it's so funny because we're not in the universal offices right now because of the pandemic, but Spine Farm, uh, you know, the label Spine Farm, they sit right next to my, my next to Eagle and Jonas who, who did marketing? Mm-hmm. He's the president. Joan, who I think the she did all the royalties and all of the the. Okay. She Joan Bowling. She she may be the her and Monty and Doug may be the three longest standing employees. In fact, Warner's kept her on. Right. Because she knows where all the bodies were buried. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. you know, so they kept her, they kept paying her. So I think the Monty was there for a while at Warner's and Psycho, you know, the radio guy, uh, Mark, uh, Abramson. Mark Abramson and Joan. So they continued on the three of them for a while. Epitaph has uh, Kathy. Kathy Merritt. So Kathy Merritt was my, was my regional. She worked under me. She, you know, so she was my sales regional on the East coast. And then she moved to the West coast. Okay. Yeah. So Kathy Merritt is an epitaph now. And it's funny because of when I see again, you know, cause it's a person that every time I see her, it's like a lot of hugs and love. Cause you know, mm. we, we did everything together and you know, it was great. I had, I had a regional in Chicago, uh, Atlanta and um, New York. And yeah. that, so those are my regionals. They, we didn't have regionals before, but then as we, things got so big, mm-hmm. uh, Case let me hire people if they wow. were in the field that did the day to day. And then I would travel on the big records to see the accounts mm-hmm. with them. Right. Okay. Otherwise, they, were, they started doing the day to day under my direction, you know, so we'd break it down how we want to do things. And then I, I give them enough rope to hang themselves, you know. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like you want to give yeah. them the autonomy. you want to give them the autonomy to be able to get things done. You were so. saying this about Case last week as well. You just deliver for me, and I'll get out of your way. I think, you know, and I imagine that's what you were doing to your guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. Took yeah. very good care. You know, they were very well taken care of in that. So yeah, it's it something which Alan mentioned, but didn't divulge any further. These legendary Christmas parties. Yeah. What's all this about then? Well, you know, because you know we were such. You know, you when you were in the New York metal scene, you know, you you started out, I remember, you know, you worked at Metal Blade in New York, you worked which was a small office. You had concrete, which many, many employees came out of there and moved on to other places. You had Roadrunner specifically. You had red distribution because they distributed a lot of metal. So it was a very tight community. And then you had the all the majors were trying to get, you know, they're starting Epic Metal, you know, Warner Metal, and yeah, they were all yeah. starting metal departments, you know, and, and you know, the, snagging concrete employees or metal bed employees and stuff like that. So it was a tight community. And Roy, again, like Case always did a generous Christmas party, but everybody was invited. There was no like, well, they can't come. There was, it was an open door to everybody, mm. but it was all, it was all metal people. And, you know, metal people were, uh, we're a tight bunch, you know, yes. and, and, and we support each other. We love each other and, and we drink together and, you know, and yeah, it was fun. So he did this party every year and we used to have it on a, a they call it the frying pan. It was like an old tugboat, historical oh. tugboat. And, and it was like an old rusty tugboat, but they, you could, even when there weren't parties uh, that you could rent out, it was a bar. You go there on the weekends and you drink there on the mm-hmm. boat. It was always, you know, never, never left, never left the, um, the dock, you know, but mm-hmm. it was always tied to the dock. So uh, those parties were great. And it was great because you got to really enjoy time with all your coworkers, but because everybody worked so hard, but also all the other industry people, you know, both from the competing labels, both from red, from, uh, you know, and then all your, you know, like your press contacts and your retail yeah. contacts and stuff like that. It was, it was, 
everybody everybody left and said wow that was fantastic <laughs> and they were awesome. they were really fantastic parties it was very yeah. generous of case you know again to do that and no questions asked he just always was a generous person wow that sounds awesome yeah um I'm, this is the last okay there's there's I got, I got a couple more questions, but I think this is like the big one. So, in because you, you've obviously you've worked across the, the industry in a number of different capacities, a number of different uh, settings. What is it that sets Roadrunner aside? What is it that makes them so special? You know, I I, I think from a, a branding standpoint, it, they, it just was all like a marquee label more than. You know, you know, no disrespect to Brian and Metal Blade, but at the time, I think truly were at. I think the typo thing really took us over the top and got us on the map. And then it was followed by Sepultura, you know, Sepultura, which is actually their, you know, as long as typo was because typo was carnivore prior. Um, you know, with Sepultura, Machine Head, and all the other stuff, which then led to Slipknot which took things to a bigger level. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you had this radio success, you know, true radio success with something that was not quite in the wheelhouse, but, you know, somewhat with Nickelback. Mm. I, think, I think the wheelhouse was being built. That was Ron Berman's time. And there's yeah, definitely so that, a lot there, which is kind of like, which is a trademark yeah. roadrunner, Ron. You know, it was, it was weird because it's just so different than anything else, but it got through the system. It's kind of yeah, like totally. with, um, it's kind of like with Victory Records with uh, being a hardcore label, mm-hmm. then having this crazy success with Hawthorne Heights and taking back Sunday. Data you know, Remember as well? Data, well, Data Remember came later, but Data Remember still had kind of a, I call it a, um, metalcore or screamcore sound right, yeah, where yeah. the other bands were traditional emo bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Really? Yeah. True, true emo band. So, you know, it, it, but I think the, the, the Nickelback thing is what was got as I was gone, but mm-hmm. I, as I recall, that is the thing that got Roadrunner over the hump that Warner brothers wanted that, wanted that label. Mm-hmm. And also when I worked with case, I mean, with Lior, Lior was enamored by, you know, from Def Jam, yep. you know, Lior Cohn. Yep. He enamored by metal and always like he, we would talk about it because he, he, he was fascinated by it because he knew that it was kind of like almost like street rap at the time. And, and, and he, it, since he was the president of Warner Brothers, he, he finally went after Roadrunner and mm-hmm. did that deal. So it was Leor who did that deal, who was fascinated with metal. Mm. Unfortunately, it kind of they kind of tore it apart and made it as an imprint, and didn't use. We should have just left it as is with the employees, yeah. leave everything as is, and just let it run, because everybody there was an expert. Mm. Uh, but then it just became an imprint, and they put their own people in place slowly. And it kind of just dissipated. Now they're trying to bring it back uh, and trying to bring the brand back. It'll never be the same. I mean, it's never going to be the same because you already stri- you stripped it away already. Yeah. And and so, but you know, you know, it is what it is. Times have changed. It is what it is, and 
that's why I'm only going up to 2012 because as far as I'm concerned, that's kind of like, that's where the, yeah. the value of the story is because it kind of did come from nothing and it did do something unique. And it can't yeah, be. We'll never, and remember, we'll never know how great Megaforce could have been. I no. mean, think about it. Metallica, Anthrax, Overkill, Anvil. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like, you know, but once, once uh, uh, Johnny lost the rights to Metallica, but made a lot of money from it, believe me, yeah. he probably is living off of that still, the, yep. the royalty rights and stuff. You know, that was the end of it. And that was another distributed label by Red, too. Can you imagine that? I got the numbers for it. It's, it in terms of, I got uh, for this first chapter, I've got the comparison between Combat, SPV, Mausoleum, Roadrunner, uh, Metal Blade, Neat, and Megaforce. Yeah. Megaforce yeah. did not put a lot of product out the door. Which? Wasn't, uh, Megaforce. There weren't a lot. No. Everything they did was like gold dust. Yes. It was, it was amazing. You know, Marsha just passed away. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, yeah, it's a shame. It very, 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 uh, she touched so many people. Mm-hmm. You know, she was such a good, both of them were so awesome. Yeah, yeah. I love them, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was such a great time, you mm. know. Mm. Yeah, for, you know, for metal and for the, for everything. I mean, it was just so great. It was, uh, and yeah, so it's, I, I just think that I still go back to like, I think the typo thing took, that took Roadrunner over the top and made that separated them from everybody else. Yeah, yeah. At the time, yeah. Because um, Brian tried a lot of different things. He was all over the place trying all types of. You know, remember he had like bitch. Yeah. Remember the, the gal bitch, and he <laughs> had um, what's the uh, trying to think of that? Uh, Fate's warning. Yeah. You know, he did a lot. He did a lot of different things. He tried. You know, it, it, that are kind of along the. It wasn't just thrash. He was trying all kinds of like hard rock opportunities. I I kind of find that, and this is a, an, un, an unverified and unread kind of opinion, but it feels like Metal Blade is very much a fans label by fans and for fans. Uh, and as a result, you have a lot of people on there who aren't going to make any money, but they're going to get the right representation from Metal Blade. Like Satan, yes. for example. Satan are a Metal Blade band. But, you know, these are guys who did Satan stopped Satan, had a, a, a career and that had a real job, then <clears throat> reformed in the last few years. They're not going to get a gold record, but Brian's still going to give them support and he's still going to give them the brand. Yeah. Like, I think it's a, yeah. fans, it's a fans venture. Even if they yeah. make $1 and it breaks even and they're in the black as far as they're concerned, I think that's where it differs from Case, where it's like, no, this is a, this is a business structure full of fans, not fans, uh, not a... a label built by fans if that makes any sense yes that makes sense it yeah. certainly does and that yeah. yeah um have you ever this is my last 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 one um have you ever seen a ghost i ask everyone this just yeah, seen a what a ghost a, a ghost in what way i'm sorry a ghost in the sense that um hey you know what it can it can range so some people have heard stuff some people kyle thomas saw of exorder saw a woman in a white gown walking out of his, uh, down the steps of his brother's house, like a, like a Victorian gown. Uh, David White from Heathen saw a ghost foot in a picture, which he then showed me, which was crazy. Oh. Um, Metal yeah. Mike says every time he works in Merciful Fate, something fucked up happens. <laughs> you know, I, I no, but then I'll tell you a strange story. I was in the hospital uh, last year for a 10-hour back surgery. Wow. And one month in the hospital, and 
the, the surgeon said, if you want to do all this stuff, I know you're a tough guy, but this is going to be very tough on you. The amount of cutting we're going to be doing and the amount of uh, metal being inserted into me. They're very metal now. I'm very metal. <laughs> and so the, um, I said, just do it because get it all done because this pandemic, nobody's going anywhere. Nobody's doing anything. So I'm going to suffer, suffer once and just do it all. And uh, it was the most painful, excruciating experience I ever experienced because there wasn't enough pain medicine they could give me to take the pain away. But then on the flip side of that, I never, I was in a 24 hour bad dream. Like whatever I was sleeping mm-hmm. and then I would wake up and I'd look and I'd see everything in front of me on the walls. The same thing that I was, my eyes are closed at night. Right. It was the most scariest. It, it, I was so freaked out by it all. I tried to escape from my room twice. I unplugged everything. Of course, then everything started beeping and all the other stuff. Yeah, but I actually yeah. got out of my bed with my walker and started running away as much as I could. Uh, that seemed almost, it was almost not even a ghost. It seemed realistic. Everything I was seeing, it was so evil and so bad. I was like, wow, I still, to this day, I can't understand how I, my eyes could be open and awake. Mm-hmm. I could be drinking coffee and looking at the wall and seeing all this stuff. That's crazy. And of course, everybody thought, now they, yeah, it was crazy because, you know, you, you'd ask the nurse and the nurse goes, huh? And, and of course, I think they understood because I was under so many drugs, yeah. you know, pain, pain medicines, opium and dilatin and all this other stuff. I was out of it, you know. It was producing a hallucinogenic effect, obviously. It was crazy. It was insane. Yeah. yeah it yeah. was scary. I was scared and I'm a big guy. I was scared. Uh, I really was. I mean, and to this day, I still can't figure it out. But <laughs> I'm glad it's over. Yeah, man. yeah. Um, have I mi- have I missed anything, roadrunner wise? Is there anything that I've not touched on that you think was probably worth diving into? I think we went through the minutiae. Th- yeah, I think we covered oh, yeah. everything. What was in the middle of the circle? What was in the middle of the circle in the office? You said you sat in a in the desk. Oh yeah, oh It was crazy when I when I first got to the. Uh, I can't remember what the address was, but at the time it was just it was one big room and we're all in the room. We were in a circle and I, and it was like, you know, it was like before you would say, I mean, so you have no privacy. I mean, you could go into another room and I guess, you know, do what you have to do. But I mean, it's literally, you were on the, you're, you're all in a big circle, all your marketing and sales and publicity and, and yeah, there was like no privacy. There was no walls, no nothing. It was, it was, <laughs> think of it as like now everybody's doing the office, open office thing. This is be this is this is yeah, way yeah. advanced, you know. And I can't. I remember we moved to that nice office, I think on Lafayette, and I had this beautiful big office with these glass doors, and it was me and my two mm-hmm. my my mar- my retail marketing guy and my East Coast mm-hmm. regional. And, uh, right. And, uh, I was like, wow, this is nice. I mean, we have these beautiful offices with plenty of space and big glass doors and stuff like that. Yeah, it was nice. They gave us our own, they gave see, there you go with case. He gave the marketing people their own office with closed doors and he gave the, um, sales guys 
their own office, and then everybody else had partitions, but they had plenty of room. Yeah, you know, so you couldn't chat shit about each other. Oh, you could chat chat shit about each other in in private. Yeah, it was so funny when I when I when I, yeah when they we went to the when I when I took the job and I said, "Wow, this is so strange," because it's like we're really on top of each other, and that. But you know, he he made the what he could. I guess when he got to the point where he was making enough money, he made the move and gave us some nice offices. So yeah, they were fantastic. Yeah. yeah, it was good. Yeah, you know, it's like I said, you you wonder where Roadrunner would be today if they weren't bought by Warner Brothers. Mm. You know, it, it'd be interesting to see what was where they would be because um, they would be like Metal Blade in terms of like you know longevity and, yep. and brand and all the other stuff. But you know, they they were bought and then typical major label they dismantle something this good. Yeah. They haven't got that mindset. Well, I think we said this last week. That it's that mindset, isn't it? It's um, you got a ten times platinum record. Let's do that again. And everyone else on the floor is like, "Yeah, but we are making money off Sepultura. We're making money off Trivium, and they're just not selling platinum." And they're like, "Ah, we don't care." Blah blah blah. blah. Yeah, I think even isn't Nickelback. They're not even on Roadrunner anymore. They're not anymore. They're a Warner Rack now. Right. I don't. Even think, I don't think they're worn it. I'm going to check. I think they are something different. Bear with me just a tick, because I was surprised by this. I think a lot of those big cash cows did stay with Roadrunner for a couple of years and then moved on. Yeah. Um, EMI Canada is that the latest oh. one? I don't. I don't believe that's the latest one. Um, latest album, Feed the Machine, BMG. Which one? Oh, UMG. BMG. Yeah. But you know, nobody cares anymore. In, in, yeah, I mean, they, they had their moment. The um, big yeah. moment. Big oh, moment. Nickel, Nickelback or Roadrunner? Uh, no, Nickelback. Oh, yeah. It's, but I have this. I have a big, had a conversation with my gitter about this kind of thing, where Dragon Force were a similar thing. They had that massive breaking point, and then from that, they forged their their fan base, and they forged their audience, so they don't need to break again. They can just play to that cash flow. They can play to that yearly yeah. cycle. Um and Nickelback is obviously the same thing, but it's sort of compounded and slightly bigger. Um, but yeah, you're right. What, maybe I don't. I don't know the circumstances to Roadrunner leaving. Sorry, Nickelback leaving Roadrunner, and maybe it was like a a major mindset where it was like, all right, let's get some more ten times platinum boys, and they were like, we're not that band anymore. Maybe that was the yeah. case. Well, you know, Case made money off of that because once he sold the rights to that, he's going to get that. And so yeah. and he's got the catalog, I think. And once he sold the catalog, I forgot where that's all at now. I, don't, I know he sold all his gold records. He was done with yeah. it. They don't really, I never really cared for them, you know. But um, I I, re, I appreciate what they do and I respect what they do. But mm. it was not, it's not my thing, you know. I like um, my relationship with Nickelback and that sort of brand of rock. With the exception of Airborne, Airborne was a Ron Berman one. I guess they don't really yeah. fall into the same category. But um, big singles, like the singles, I like the sound. I can't get into their narrative full form. I can't listen to an album end to end each nah. time. It's same with like pop punk. There's like the emo bands, the post emo bands, like you might come with romances nowadays. It's like Creeper and Salem. They're great. They're they're really good. But I can only get into the singles. I can never get yeah. into the albums and. that's another conversation because that's obviously by design because the singles are meant to appeal to the massive demographic. And on that demographic, I guess I'm over here on the fringe, which I'm listening to it and I'm liking it, but I'm not going to buy an album. Yeah. It doesn't have any, 
don't beat on the bones. It's not, it's post uh, that pop punk and, you know, like that new metal. It, there's no substance to me. It's, it's a hit. You, you, you work the hit and that's what it is. And then you mm. try to melt it as far as you can melt it. And then you come with another hit. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have, I'd rather have an, I, I love to see the body of work of a, thrash band or a New York hardcore band or something like that. I like the body of work. I want to be able to feel each song yeah. and feel, you know, and there's generally very few times that there are dud on the, when you listen to it front to back, it's all good. Mm. Mm. It's all very good. rarely. I, Maiden are a weird exception because they're one of my favorite bands, but they yeah. in the, the 2000s sort of went into like a, it's almost prog metal what they do now. They have like the opening track, which is the rock single. And to, to tell everyone that there's a new album out and they won't do another one, they, they won't do another single. They'll just sell the album of 10 minute songs. And I'm like, fine, totally cool. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're almost like when they playing live or even, you know, their album, it's like, it's almost like an epic, you know, it's like a mm. big, it's not, pro, it's not Prague, mm. but it, it had, it, it runs around the same lines as Prague in regards yeah. to long songs you know, and, and it's a storyline, and you know the whole yeah. deal. I mean, it's 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 much it's much like Prague, but it Iron Maiden's kind of like its separate entity in the mm. way it runs. Yeah, completely and agree. I was lucky enough to see um, they did a very small tour in the U.S. and they played this club on the south side of Chicago right after the Soundhouse tapes, and I got to see wow. them play. No way. Yeah, yeah, it's very very. You know, just a lucky thing. You know, yeah. I had to drive quite a distance to get there, but I got there. And wow. uh, I'm happy I did because, you know, I can't believe I saw Maiden with Diano. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a, yeah. you're, you're, you're like a unicorn. Yeah, no, it was fantastic. Diano was meant to do his final gig. He, had, he made up a Maiden, effectively a Maiden tribute band with other former members like Dennis Stratton and a few other ones like from those 75 yeah. to 80 days. Obviously, that didn't happen last year, but I was gearing up to try that. I'd, I'd would have liked to have seen that. Do you ever go to that bar, Cart and Horses? The no, I didn't. Yeah. no, I didn't. I should have done. I should have done when I could. But I always order stuff from them. You know, they have yeah. like you know they they slowly eke out stuff because they're you know during the pandemic they're trying to milk it, and I guess Harris is good with it because they put the Maiden logo on there, the font, mm. and that's but they have their own line of like you know pine glasses and hats and hoodies and stuff like that. I'm I always buying them. That. Yeah. The cart cart and horses. Yeah. You can yeah, look it up. On, you can look it up and then also you'll see it on Facebook. You should like them. Yeah. That way, <laughs> the, yeah. The, the, the Google SEO is about a cart and horses, the birthplace of Iron Maiden. I thought it was yeah. the Ruskin arms. That was that. Yeah. That's the play. In fact, they just, they're releasing the CD with, members of iron maiden mm-hmm. not ex-members and ex-people affiliated with iron maiden doing a covers album right. so they're selling that right now if you got there early they actually put your name on it as oh, a wow. thank you and i i missed the boat because i was so busy i got there late when they went to print on the on the booklets yeah yeah you know what you're kind of problematic to me, Jim, because when last week when we were talking about product, like the, the Ace of Spades final stuff, I immediately started looking at Trivium um, like anniversary LPs and things like that. I was like, I'd love to get some. And I was like, no, 
I shouldn't do it. No, I can't. I can't justify the cost, especially uh, when I'm trying to when I'm trying to jump shit from my job this year. And now yeah, I'm looking I mean, at the, the cart and horses, and I'm like, you know what would be cool? A cart and horses pie yeah. glass. <laughs> they're they're beautiful. They're etched, beautiful glasses. I have a drum head from them too, wow. with the with the art of the on the wall and. Yeah, it's it's great. They have great merchandise in that. And yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> how about that? You got you're lucky. You got that Flair Jaeger, dude. It's it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm, it was one of those. I was like, I'm going to splurge out for myself. I'm going to enjoy myself here. And I don't know when I'm gonna, ever going to drink it. I'll save it for the apocalypse. My my the UK GM. I reached out to him. He went mm-hmm. fishing. He's a he's an avid fisherman mm-hmm. and. He on Monday he says, Jim, I got your message here. Do you want me to buy that bottle for you? And I said, No, it's sold out. It was gone. You know, within two by the weekend, it was gone. Mm-hmm. And then I mm-hmm. says, Too late. You can't get it anymore. So it's mm-hmm. just one of those things that was not meant to be. Well, I, have if, the, I was going to say, if it happens again, I'm on your list of people you can contact to get that sorted out for you. If that happens, yeah. But, if know. they ever do something like that again, I mean, I've gotten. You know, like I got the wine in the coffin box. I've got a bunch of different etched uh, pine glasses for Slayer. Yeah. Um, you know, I made in. I've got all those the bottles of wine in the wooden boxes. Oh, wow. you, hey, know. Man, you know, what I'm doing tonight. I'm doing a. Um, it's called Headbangers Brew. It's me and um, there's another YouTube channel called The Pump Room, and it's literally just two people down south who um, do like a cocktail show. And I just said, reached yeah. out to him and said, look, there's all these bands that do branded boozes. Do you want to like do a tournament or something? And they're like, yeah. So like, every month now we're going to be putting, to the, well, this is just some library get I had yesterday, but tonight yeah. is um, Road Crew versus uh, Trooper. And we'll just chat yeah. for an hour and, and oh, which is the best one. That'll be fun. You know? Yeah. I have a whole, like uh, in the kitchen, I have a whole like, Right, like all the liquors and beers and stuff like that. I have all the bottles and, you know, all the pint glasses and all that. See, I have all that stuff. And the House of Metal. This is the House of Metal. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> right, I've uh, got to feed my kids. Yeah, yeah, and i got to get back to work and that. So, good yeah. talking to you. Keep me posted. All right, cheers, buddy. Yeah, take care. Take care of the little ones, all right? Yeah, well, I'll send you the, uh, the great cap so you know what is going on. So, I'll make a